a group of sociologists in the 1970s uh, did an experiment uh, in the United States. They uh, gathered a group of uh, whites, middle-class New York City residents, and presented the people with a picture of a crowd on a subway. And in the foreground were two men. Uh, One was white and the other was black. Uh, One wore a business suit and the other was in workman's overalls. And one was giving his money to the other who was threatening him with a knife. Uh, Now, as a matter of fact, it was the black man who wore the suit and it was he who was being robbed by the white labourer. But such a picture didn't square with the prejudices of the viewers. Uh, To them, in their mind, white men were executives, businessmen, rich people, whereas black men were blue-collar workers. Blacks were the robbers and whites were the victims. And so... When they reported back to the sociologists what they had seen, they described a black labourer assaulting a white businessman. Such was their prejudice. Now that study was about 50 years ago and we can only hope that such perceptions and prejudices aren't so strong today. We can hope that, at least. Uh, But though we hope that is the case, prejudice is still a very real thing. Um, our Our society highlights the prejudice of racism, and it is a real prejudice. But it is by no means the only example of prejudice. In fact, all of us are in danger every day of being guilty of subtle forms of prejudice. And in this passage, uh, we have described the single greatest example, or should I say the single worst example of prejudice the world has ever seen because it led to the greatest injustice that has ever happened on this earth. The innocent son of God, the creator of the world, was put on trial and judged by sinful men who he had himself created. And we see, uh, throughout these verses, we see very clearly the prejudice that was in the heart of those who put Jesus on trial. So what I'd like to do is uh, just look in more detail at how their prejudice manifested itself before closing by looking at how we can be guilty of, similar, of a similar fault. Uh, so let's see, first of all, how was prejudice demonstrated in the trial of Jesus Christ? Uh, The first thing we notice is that the Sanhedrin, that's the uh, 
chief priests and the elders and the scribes mentioned in verse 53, the Sanhedrin looked for evidence to confirm their opinion. Uh, Look at verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Do you hear what that verse says? Uh, The chief priests and the elders, they wanted to put Jesus to death. They desired to end his life. And so they looked for evidence so they could make that verdict. Hopefully you realize that's backwards. That isn't how justice is supposed to work. You don't decide on the verdict and then try to find evidence to back up the verdict you want to happen. No, a just judge, just judges, they look at the evidence first and then they decide what, the, what verdict matches the evidence. You don't decide you want to put someone to death and then try to find the evidence to do so. And yet that is exactly what the chief priests and the elders did. They hated Christ so much, they loathed him so much, they were so jealous of him that their hatred of him and their malice towards him overrode any sense of justice. And the tragedy was, they probably couldn't even see it. They probably couldn't even see the prejudice of their own hearts. Such was their hatred of Christ. So that's the first thing. They looked for evidence to confirm their own opinion. But look again. Secondly, they ignored inconsistencies. They ignored inconsistency. Look at verses 56 to 59. Mark writes, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. We're told that they were looking for witnesses who would testify against Christ because they wanted to put him to death. They found some witnesses who were willing to lie, but even the lying false witnesses couldn't keep their stories straight. Their stories contradicted one another. Uh, The Old Testament made very clear uh, a principle of justice. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Uh, Likewise, Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. It wasn't enough to just have one person say, such and such did this to me, so and so did this to me. 
that isn't a sufficient standard of justice. Uh, This principle of needing two or three witnesses is a very ancient and a very wise principle. Of course, we all know why, don't we? Uh, One witness can easily be prejudiced against the person they are accusing. They might have a grudge against them. They may want to do a person harm, and so they make up some false accusation and tell a lie about them. You cannot trust the accusation of just one witness. What you need is a number of witnesses, and ideally a number of witnesses who are unconnected from each other. And there you can get an idea of truth. But as we see here in these verses, the Sanhedrin, they gather witnesses, but their testimony doesn't agree. Their testimony cancels each other out because ultimately it was false and falsehood shows itself in the end because it cannot stand up to truth. And that should have been the end of the trial. If these Sanhedrin, these, um, this Jewish law court, if they had been fair and just, they would have stopped the trial then and there and said, we've got nothing we can bring against Jesus. But because they were prejudiced, because they were eaten up with their malice for Christ, they chose to ignore the inconsistencies in the evidence. So you see, first of all, they looked for evidence which confirmed their opinion. Secondly, they ignored inconsistencies which didn't match their opinion. But then thirdly, notice that they assumed Christ's guilt from the beginning. Uh, Look at verse 60. Uh, God's word reads, and the high priest stood up in the midst, and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Jesus is asked by the high priest, what is it these men are accusing you of? And notice, first of all, Christ remains silent. And the reason for that is very simple. Jesus has already spoken his defense. He has already lived his defense. Every miracle he ever performed in the sight of these men demonstrated who he was. And Jesus knew that there was no defense he could give here which would convince them of the truth. They'd already seen the truth and had rejected. He could see the prejudice in their heart. So he kept silent. There was no point saying anything further. They had already heard everything they could have heard to convince them. 
But the high priest asks him again directly. Verse 61, he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says it clear as anything. He says, I am. And he says, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that may or may not mean uh, a lot to you sitting here, but that would have meant a lot to the people who had Jesus on trial. Because Jesus there is quoting almost exactly Daniel chapter 7, which is one of the great passages in Scripture which describes the Messiah, uh, describes the heavenly Son of God who would come to redeem his people. And what Jesus is saying in verse 62 is, I am that Son of Man. I am the Son of God. It is as you say. And as we read, the high priest tears his clothes. And uh, in this great display of uh, mock horror at the blasphemy, he condemns the Son of God himself to death. But do you see the problem? The problem is they do not examine whether what Jesus is saying is true. They simply assume that it isn't. They've already decided what they think. They've already decided what they believe. And no matter what Christ says, they're not going to listen to it. They assume his guilt from the beginning. In other words, they're blind, but they're blind because they want to be Blind, And that is the worst sort of blindness to have. Uh, it's one thing to be blind innocently, to genuinely not know something, but to deliberately shut your eyes to the truth is a deeper, darker sort of blindness. Uh, it reminds me of a story I heard about a school teacher uh, who lost her life savings in a business scheme uh, because she had been swindled by a con man and when her investment disappeared and her dreams were shattered she went to the better business bureau and uh, she went to them to see if they could help and they said to her why on earth didn't you come to us in the first place hadn't you heard of the better business bureau and the woman responded oh yes I've always known about you but I didn't come because I was afraid you would tell me not to do it. And I think we can all relate to some extent to that attitude. Uh, the attitude which knows the best course, but we don't want to go down that path because where it leads is somewhere we don't want to go. Uh, perhaps we see an envelope on the doormat and we suspect what is within it but we don't want to know it. We don't want to read that bill. We don't want to hear that news, so we, we put it under the doormat, or we drop it in the bin, or we try to ignore it. We turn a blind eye. We're walking down the street, and we see someone we know, but we don't want to talk to them right now, and so we pass over on the other side, having not seen them. And I could give a 100 different examples like that. And that sort of blindness 
the Bible speaks very strongly against. Because it's not an innocent blindness. It's not an honest mistake. It's a deliberate refusal to see the truth. And that's what the Sanhedrin were doing. They were deliberately closing their eyes to the truth. Now, I'm sure when we read this passage, we all uh, shake our heads, don't we, at the injustice of it. And we think, what a sham trial. It's even worse when you look into it, because we discover that this trial was at night. And um, if what I've read is correct, uh, Jewish trials were not supposed to be at night. Uh, That was not allowed. But in many different ways, the Sanhedrin here cut corners to push through the verdict that they want. And the whole trial is a sham, and we might shake our heads at it. But we need to take a look at our own hearts. We need to take a look at ourselves. Because the reality is, those three signs of prejudice, which we've seen so clearly in the Jewish chief priests and the elders... Those same evidences, those same uh, manifestations can be in our own hearts as well. Uh, For example, uh, do you look for evidence to confirm your opinion of others? Uh, Perhaps there's someone you don't like for whatever reason or an organization you don't like or even a country you don't like and you look actively for information which confirms your bad opinion. Perhaps we choose some news sources over other news sources because we know that news source says what I want to hear and that one doesn't. Do you see how we can do the same thing that the chief priests did? They looked for evidence to support what they wanted to believe. Or perhaps uh, you don't just look for evidence to support what you believe, but you actively ignore evidence that goes against your bad opinion. Um, perhaps there's someone you dislike, um, someone who you have a, something of a grudge against, perhaps in some way. And when you hear bad things about that person, you sort of lap it up and you love it, you enjoy it. It's like a tasty treat. But then you hear a good thing about that person. And then what do you do? Perhaps you just sort of dismiss it and say, oh, well, they probably didn't mean it. They were just doing it because of this, that and the other. And we twist that good thing we heard and we make it a bad thing it's a very common thing to do we can demonstrate our prejudices by what we do with the things we hear and it's not just with people we can do this it's with ideas as well we can fall in love with certain ideas which we cling to even when the evidence is stacked against it Uh, I'm told, apparently, that uh, Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, uh, used to teach that the heavier an object was, the faster it would fall to earth. 
And Aristotle was regarded as the great thinker, and that seemed to make sense. Heavy objects fall faster. And people thought that was, sounded good and that was right. And they clung to that belief for many hundreds of years. And, of course, during that time, anyone could have got two objects and dropped them from a height to test where this idea was true. Uh, but it was not until uh, Galileo, uh, in 1589, uh, suggested something different. And he went to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and he pushed off a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight. And both of them landed at the same instance. But the power of belief was so strong that despite seeing it with their own eyes, some still clung to what Aristotle had taught many hundreds of years before. They had seen the evidence for themselves, but it didn't fit with the idea they preferred to believe. And so they discounted it. Uh, someone once quipped that it's difficult uh, to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. And so when we read of these chief priests and these elders and these scribes, before we judge them as beyond the pale, let's beware lest we are judging ourselves. Do we have secret prejudices that we cling to? Do we have ways we filter information so that we take what we like and we ignore what we don't? The Bible says that's incredibly dangerous. It may not always end in catastrophe, but it did here. It ended with sinful human beings crucifying the creator of the universe. But you might ask, but how do we escape? How do we escape from prejudice? Because uh, some of these things are, are so deeply embedded in our hearts that we can't even see it. Uh, some things that we believe uh, we don't even recognize as prejudice. We just think they're truth. How can we see the truth? How do we know when what we believe is true and when it's just merely our own prejudice? Well, it's interesting. Uh, not in this gospel, but in John's gospel, John tells us of uh, what happened after this. And uh, after Christ has been condemned by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they take him to Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor, because they couldn't administer execution themselves. That had to go to the Roman governor. And so they take him to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate has this Jewish prisoner before him, and he hears that the uh, Jewish council have said he is claiming to be a king. And Pilate speaks to him, and this is in John chapter 18. Uh, it says, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? 
And this is what Jesus answered. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And ironically, Pilate responded by saying, what is truth? Not realizing, despite what Jesus had just said, that he had truth standing before him. And that's the only way we can cure ourselves of prejudice. By having a touchstone we can rely on. By having someone we can go to who will teach us the truth. It's no good relying on our own hearts. As Jeremiah in the Old Testament said, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, Our hearts deceive us all the time. We deceive others and we even deceive ourselves. We need someone to tell us the truth, someone outside of ourselves. And Jesus said, that's who I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As he said to Pilate, I have come into this world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We have to listen to what Jesus has to say. Otherwise, we are doomed to live by our own prejudices, by our own self-deceit, by our own faulty understanding. But as Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Let me just leave you with that challenge this evening. Do you honestly run what you think through the filter of God's word? Do you honestly run what you think through the filter of what Christ says? Or do you instinctively rely on your own understanding, on your own thinking, on your own judgment? If you do, beware, because you're going down the same path as the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they ended up crucifying Christ. The other path is much safer, is much more commendable. The path of bowing to Christ and saying, I am so deceived, I am so weak, I do not know of myself the right path. Jesus, teach me the way, teach me the truth, teach me how I should live. And as Jesus himself said, the person who does that is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And when the winds and the storms and the waves of life come, then that house stands firm. That's the only solution against prejudice, looking looking and taking our guidance from him. That's why I've chosen as our last hymn, number 708.
708, a hymn which really is a prayer to Christ to help, uh, to ask him to help us see the evil of our heart and to find the truth in him. It's number 708, show me myself, O holy Lord, help me to look within. I will not turn me from the sight of all my sins. So let's close by singing number 708.